Welcome to the Dharmic Evolution. Hey everybody, I'm your host, James Kevin O'Connor, singer-songwriter, audio-video artist, and master storyteller. And today, I have with us Chris Lipper. This man is a mastermind magician. Uh, in addition to overcoming dyslexia, the challenges of that, he's also a, an inventor. He understands patents. He was in the stock market. The man has so many cool stories. You're going to love this one. So strap up your seatbelts and let's go for a ride. Today, I am really delighted to welcome Chris Lipper. Um, Chris has such an interesting tale, and as we we're coming into the show today, we were just talking about the Rangers, and I know, Chris, uh, first of all, welcome to Dharmic Evolution. It's a pleasure to have you on board today. Thank you very much, Kevin. And uh, you're, you're probably still in celebration mode over the Rangers, I'm sure. Actually, um, we're in a little bit of panic mode. It's game six tonight. We're hoping for a game seven, so uh, I shouldn't say panic mode. It, right. Uh, many of us will be watching. Yeah, I just, I just meant that just being there and being this far, it's got to oh, be a rush, you know? <laughs> yeah, I've been grinning for the last month, for sure. Right, right, of course. Right. So, uh, listen, I wanted that you got such an interesting past with all the things, and, and present, of course, with all the things that you have going on. And I wanted to just uh, uh, begin with, um, you know, just take me back a little bit. Like, where did you grow up uh, before we got to even get into the business side? Like, what was your... Uh, what was your upbringing, and, and did you grow up in New Jersey? or Can you just take us down that path? Sure, and it's actually part of the whole story. So uh, I'm born and raised, well, I'm born in New York City, raised in Westchester County, White Plains, New York. Uh, I was diagnosed with dyslexia at a very young age. Uh, so at the age of 10 and a half, maybe 11, I was sent to boarding school. And I would stay in boarding school pretty much year-round. Uh, so it was the full school year and then summer school included. So it's a toss-up between White Plains, New York, and um, my favorite boarding school, Rumsey Hall, in Washington, Connecticut. And so was the boarding school something to do with the dyslexia? Is that why you ended up there? It's what you did with dyslexic kids in the 70s. The school system couldn't really handle us, and they, nobody understood it yet. It was really right. viewed as a, a big-time negative thing, and you were you know, put in special classrooms with you know, kids with other kinds of problems. And you know, one of my challenges in life was I, I didn't feel like the other kids. I, I didn't get to mainstream and um, I was told, like, I really wanted to learn to play music. And I was told that, you know, you, I, I couldn't do that because of my dyslexia. That I, I was told I had to learn how to read and write first, which I guess in theory makes sense. But I don't know if holding kids back makes sense either. Right. So it was, it was basically it just ignorance on the part of the world. We just had no idea of how to understand it. Because I've known many dyslexic people and... Uh, you guys all have a different type of brilliance than the rest of the world. I don't know. Ignorance might be strong, but I, you know, I have no resentment at all. They did the best they could at the time, or maybe ignorance is the exact right word. I'm not sure. Right. Um, but you know, they they just didn't know any better, and the the intent was to take care of the mainstream and and the gifted kids. Right. Uh, it was just a misunderstood, you know, uh, medium for lack of a better term. 
So how did you, like, with boarding school, when did that end for you? Like, how old were you when this, this end, and you, you moved on to the next phase of your life? I started the summer of sixth grade and went through sixth through uh, the beginning of ninth to the school in Washington, Connecticut called Rumsey Hall. And they, they had a program there for dyslexic kids. And, you know, I got very involved with sports and other things where I could shine. Uh, but there we were allowed to mainstream with the other kids. Um, and then I went to a high school in New Jersey, Pennington Prep, where they also had a dyslexic program. Um, but you would spend a lot of time in the program versus uh, mainstreaming with the other kids. Well, I guess it was a mixed bag. And then by the time I got to college, when I was 18, I, I had lived away for so long. Um, college was never going to be a big success for me. I think I was kicked out of three. Um, and I, you know, frankly, I couldn't handle the freedom of college. So you were kicked out. Why were you kicked out? Well, I, kicked out again might be strong. I, w- I was asked not to come back. <laughs> How's that? Okay. Is, it, is this um, because you were partying or because the dyslexia had something to do with it? It was the dyslexia. Like at one school I was at, the deal was you took a summer semester and you had you every all the dyslexic kids took three classes and you had to get three a's to be accepted to the mainstream in the fall and i got two a's and a c the c was in accounting wow um so you know stuff happens pretty high bar though yeah well i mean three a's that that was their deal and we only had to take three classes and you know what it was a lot of fun right i I love summer school it was a great time Uh and um then I went to another college, uh, Adelphi University, and I was in the business school, but the dyslexic program was picking our classes, and they were more intent on getting me interested in school versus you know, perhaps having a major, but we didn't pick any business classes, so that didn't go over well with the business school. Right. Um, but, you know, it was time to start working. I had been away. I had always worked, and when I was in school, I couldn't work and do something. So I started working on Wall Street. Okay. What, where did you end up on Wall Street? What was your first? I started at a mutual fund, kind of like a, a summer gig as a, a res, receptionist, a gopher. You know, a lot of people on Wall Street, I think, start that way. But right. I would spend a lot of time in a trading room. And uh, I, I liked that a lot. There was some excitement. There was, some, there was a pulse to what was going on in the world coming over the ticker. And uh, I kind of got hooked. And my family is a big Wall Street family. And so it was somewhat, um, I don't know, dinner conversation. So were you trading equities or uh, futures or like what? I I was just a trading room brat at that point. I was just a guy who would hang out in there and eat my lunch kind of thing. Eventually, I started working for a company that my dad was an owner in called New York and Foreign Securities. And it was there where I got licensed and um, was able to, to learn more. I, I, I was never a trader. That, that would suggest that um, um, I, I would have known a lot more than I had. Right. No, I, I only meant what the firm was doing. I didn't mean you specifically. You were a bit young, I'm sure. Right. First, <laughs> mutual fund. The second one was an uh, institutional trading firm. And I, I was about 20 years old when I, had my ser- I got my Series 7. So you said your whole family was, this made, made for really amazing dinner conversation, I imagine. Or, Everybody talking about the futures and, you know. Or, or really dull, depending on how you look at it. 
Uh, right. But, yeah, so like mandatory reading in our house was Barron's every week, which is the, at least then was the, uh, I don't know, the holy grail of the industry. It would come out every Sunday and it would be highlighted on everyone's desk on Monday kind of thing. Yeah, I think it still is actually. Okay. It's still a pretty big player. Hey, um, so so how long? So you would you kind of moved on from there. Um, was that a long uh, tenure? You know, I was there learning probably the... two three years, and then I went down to the floor for a year or two. And I was on the floor. I actually lost my job the Friday before the crash in eighty seven, or was it eighty six? Yeah, eighty seven. Yeah, October, right? right? Uh, so that Friday was my last day on the floor, and there was never a mistake, but there was the fear of a mistake with my dyslexia. Um, the floor is an interesting place. Again, I, these are the best personalities I've yet to find. These are quick wit, fun people, intense people. They work hard and they play hard. Um, and on the floor, it was a very interesting dynamic back then. This was when buy programs and sell programs were starting. So upstairs, it was computerized. People would push buttons. Right. And you could hear the rumbling on the floor as these programs would start. When you work on the floor of the exchanges, at least back then, um, you, you had a sixth sense, which was hearing. And you could just hear the rumbling building. And um, then all of a sudden, the phones would light up and things would go crazy. And we were down there doing manual tickets by hand while, based on their one stroke of a button. And the chance of a mistake was huge. So when you say there's a rumbling, like like what exactly was happening? It felt like, like an earthquake coming your way. You could hear the noise, the volume of the room just picking up, depending on what areas these pro programs were starting in. So everybody was watching what was going on electronically, and then they were reacting to it. So you were hearing the volume of, of the, the people in the building just like really... I don't really... know if we could even watch it that well electronically then. Yeah, you could see the volume, but there was a delay back then in the tape also. It was amazing, the, the, the tape, which we, you would call the ticker. You know, if there was a triple witching day, which is when a lot of things would expire, and right. they were the third Fridays of the month or something like that, um, that tape could sway hundreds of points, you know, an hour or two after closing. So, you know, there was just a disconnect between the speed going on upstairs and the reality downstairs back then. A fascinating time to be on the floor and a part of this whole thing. Um, I do miss uh, the personalities, the money for sure. Um, but it was time for me to move on and, and time for me, frankly, to, to blaze my own trail. Right. Right. So, so, um, what was next for you after, and that was a, a, a fascinating experience. I mean, being on the floor, I mean, I visited the, the Chicago board of trade and, and I, I just know what you're talking about when that, that excitement and all that, that energy is just bottled up and then it just releases, you know, like I was at the bond pit years ago and it was just kind of amazing. So where did, so what was the next chapter in your life after that? Um, so after that, as I recall, and this is a while ago, I, I started a, my first company then called CSL Sports, and it was a marketing company. I was a, always a big athlete, and at the time, tennis was my thing, and um, I was playing a lot of tennis. I knew a lot of the pros, um, and I started selling equipment to pro shops in the local country clubs. 
So I, I would drive out to the Hamptons for a day and hit all the clubs out there. Westchester certainly had its fair share. Um, and I would sell things from different kinds of strings and racket grips. And uh, I remember there was a new type of tennis racket. It was a three-string racket called uh, Mad Rack. And we did very well for them. What's a three-string racket? Well, most rackets have a set of mains and a set of diagonals. This had two sets of diagonals. Oh, the okay. The ball could sink in further. The holes were bigger. Because I was picturing something from the Flintstones when you said three strings. Uh, was, I couldn't even imagine it. Yeah. It was, <laughs> it was a cool concept. I don't, it was never allowed by the USTA because you could get too much bite on the ball and get too much spin. Right. Um, but it was fun. It was definitely uh, a good product and a good time. And I bet you still have people out there using that racket as their favorite to this day. I don't due to injury. Um, and so I kind of move, I'm a mover honor. Um, so once I moved on from playing tennis, I moved on from doing that. Right. And then I started selling embroidery for, um, a very large, the world's largest embroidery company called Lion Brothers out of Owings Mills, Maryland. And they were great. They were, uh, I believe then a hundred year old company. So there's obviously more than that now, but they were traditionally, uh, making Boy Scout and Girl Scout patches. And they wanted somebody who could get them into the fashion industry. And um, so I helped them open up 7th Avenue. And I, it was interesting. I learned very well how to sell then because it was cold calling. It was knocking on doors that I would literally do a building a day. I would take the train into the city, um, pick my building, and start knocking on doors. My first building was the Empire State Building. My first order was until I got to the 16th floor, and that was working my way down. Wow. <laughs> so you, when you said you opened 7th Avenue, like describe that. What exactly do you mean by well, that? Well, by the time we were done, we were working with major accounts, including Ralph Lauren, DKNY, Old Navy, The Gap, um, Polo, uh, a number of them, and I suspect they still have them today. Um, th these were great accounts. These were marquee accounts. Yeah. And it was a marquee company. They deserved those accounts. They, they, um, they earned that right by, you know, having the integrity and the products and the, you know, the capabilities that they had of, you know, one advantage was we could sample domestically and manufacture overseas where the products were being made. So it seems to me like you were a natural fit to do sales. Like, how did you even know that you could do this? I, I've sold my whole life. My first job was, I, I don't know, I, you know when kids go out and make arts and crafts in school and things like that? Right. So, so I would sell mine. You know, my parents would have friends come over and I would end up selling them the clay <laughs> that made or whatever. Um, so you were a captain of industry as a young tyke already. Yes. But yeah, I'm selling is, I thought I was um, a natural salesman. I, I learned later in life. Um, that sales is much more systematic than uh, the way I had been doing it. And that's right. training to figure out, but that's later in the story. Okay. So, so you, you were doing this, uh, this sales with the fashion with, you know, um, with Lion Brothers right. and, and so how long did that last before you moved on uh, to the next thing? I guess I moved down there around 93 94 I, I don't know let's say five years something like that between selling in new york and and being down at headquarters in owings mills so i was probably there three four five years something like that and then what happened was i came up with an idea an idea for a product 
And as great as you know it is working for a hundred year old company, when you come up with ideas, they don't move quickly, at least not quickly enough for me. Right. And I, I'm an, I, a guy who, when I get an idea, I, I, I need to put it into action. I, I don't like to have to ask for permission. So it was time for me to start a business. So this goes into your inventor chapter, yep. correct? Yeah. So my- oh, this was so cool because I did not know this about you, and, and, and I'm fascinated with this. So take us down that road. How does one become an inventor? We already are one, and, and you know, you just didn't have the title, I guess, yet. Well, I guess people, you, you always get the ideas. You just don't. I mean, my first invention was when I was a kid. Somebody asked if I wanted to go camping. And I figured, why would anybody want to go camping and not have electricity where you could charge things? Right. But I thought of the idea of a portable generator. Now, I'm, you know, nine years old or something. But I drew out this box with plugs on it. And I talked to kind of an older kid who was an engineer type and we started sketching it out and all of a sudden like we saw an ad for a Honda generator so we stopped. <laughs> so you were creating it you didn't even know there was one that had already been built yet. Right I didn't know you could That's... make a living doing it and I made a good living for a long time doing it. I was a professional inventor for 15 years. Um, so my first invention was, well, in the apparel industry, and no offense to anyone listening, what the apparel industry really does, if you break it down, is you take an inexpensive medium, and by putting some kind of something on it, a pattern, a design, a licensed property, whatever it might be, you can charge more. So a a $5 t-shirt now becomes a $25 t-shirt. And that's kind of one aspect of the apparel industry. So a lot of times what companies were looking for, at least back in the 90s, were gift with purchase. That if you bought something, you got something with it for free kind of thing. And I guess the cosmetic industry and some other industries were doing this. So I started thinking of inexpensive mediums that you could dress up and it would give a perceived higher value. And the whole tattoo craze was starting, like really getting into high gear. And um, and what what year was approximately uh, when this started? This was like 15 years ago? 93, 94. 93. Okay. So it was just starting. And um, removable tattoos, the technology had gotten better. It wasn't like the, the lick-on ones when you were a kid. These were, had great detail and definition. So I thought, well, what if we put a removable tattoo in a hang tag and offered it as a gift with purchase? And I, I made a prototype. And what's a hang tag? What it's do you mean by that? Cut off of a garment when you buy a tee. Oh, got it. Okay. It's all that stuff that hangs as papers that you that are swift tack on and you cut off. Right. And, you know, this is one of those ideas that gets you out of bed. So it's like, oh, this could work. And so you get out of bed and you start cutting and gluing and making and you wake up and, you know, you in the morning there's a prototype. And that was where that started. And then you hire an artist and you go out and you start showing your handmade samples to companies. And I, I would go to trade shows, and trade shows were huge in the 90s. We had amazing trade shows in the apparel industry in particular. There was this super show in Atlanta where booths had escalators. And it was crazy how big these booths were um, and what a big deal that show was. There was the licensing show. There was a show in Chicago we'd go to, Magic out in 
Vegas twice a year. So I was kind of on the circuit getting thrown out of trade show booths. <laughs> getting thrown out. Yeah, facing Converse at the time because they had signed Dennis Rodman, who had tattoos all over him and who he was yeah. kind of an out there guy. But I figured they signed Dennis Rodman, they should be using my tattoo hang tags. Right. And what that was was a hang tag that incorporated a removable tattoo as a gift with purchase. And eventually, after being dodged at multiple shows, we got in front of them. And Converse, gratefully, was our first order. Wow. And, uh, that must have been so exciting. It was very exciting. It wasn't a big order, but it was enough to keep me going. It was around that time that the patent we had filed, and back then it took about 14 months for a patent to issue, and it, it had issued. So we had now had a patented product and a customer. And from there, I forget who our second was, but we, we started to make some headway. And um, before I know it, we, we landed an account, we, we landed Keds, Keds sneakers. And we weren't just working with sneaker companies, but they were a good one because their markups were big and they were manufacturing overseas. And I don't know, it just worked. And we developed a line with Keds called Sneaker Art where kids could design their own shoes with our tattoos. And um, they were buying 100 million units a year. Wow. So how did that work? How did the kids get their, they would just submit their art like through the mail and then You're, it would go into manufacturing? Or? They would buy the shoes and they would come with eight or ten tattoos. And they were great to work with. They were a great company. Uh, all our customers were wonderful. They were great creative people. On the front side, you know, the, the back end could get difficult, but the, the creative guys were and, and gals were great. Right. So every season we were making another set of eight or 10 or 12 tattoos to go on the footwear. Okay. And it was a clever idea, and that gave us the traction to keep going. And then I kept filing patents. And um, so the first one and the last one are probably the best stories, and there was a bunch in between. Um but on the last one, go ahead, you had a question? No, so so you said you kept filing patents, but you already, I mean, is this for other products that you were yeah, developing? We ended up with tattoo trading cards, tattoo greeting cards. We had tattoo cereal boxes. We had um, a number of them that I made. A, I got a design patent on a plush doll. Uh, we developed a brand called Cyberwinks. It's when emoticons kept, were getting popular and uh, people were just starting to email. The internet was starting to really kick in, and people would send smiley faces. I figured, well, instead of emailing a smiley face, why not have a plush doll you could send someone? Right. And we started making the. We have a trademark on the name Cyberwinks, and we were making plush dolls that could sit on monitors, on the edge of the monitor. Right. But, you know, unfortunately, being an inventor and a high D and dyslexic and a visual type, all those fast-moving things, focus isn't a real strong point for me. Okay. It's always, I'm on to the next thing. Right. Um, so the next thing, speaking of the next thing, and are you're, you're, um, you're the managing uh, member at the alternative board of North Central New Jersey, which is TAB. Yeah. Can you explain exactly what... TAB is and how you ended up there? Sure. The Alternative Board is a wonderful organization that I, I, I started as a member. So I joined the Alternative Board when I was inventing 
as I needed a place to go. So my last invention, and if anybody out there wants to run with us, go for it, was a self-squeegeeing shower door. And I don't know if you have glass doors to your shower or a curtain, but you know, most wives want you to squeegee the shower door of the droplets of water kind of thing. And guys right. just want to get out of the shower and start their day, you know? Yeah. Figure, well, if the door's sliding or if it's opening, why couldn't there be a squeegee on there that would do it itself? And it was right around this time I presented that to my board, the alternative board, and they were like, you know, hey, they, I remember the exact feedback was, hey, hotshot, before you move on to your next invention, why don't you fix the typos on the website of your previous one? Why don't you get some traction going there? And they were, So how did, how did you take that criticism? You're 100% right, and it's what I needed to hear, and there was nowhere else I was going to hear that kind of feedback. Okay. So... <laughs> I'm laughing because I think it was our first conversation on the phone. You were giving me a little bit of tough love. And uh, I, I got to tell you, it's very unusual and so appreciated. So so you brought this great idea and they just said they, they were like basically not even in that that zip code or country. Of- oh, because at the time I had put all my eggs in one basket with my last invention where I took the tattoos and turned them into a transdermal delivery system where the tattoos were now delivering drugs and vitamins and the image on the tattoo was changing. Wait a minute. So, so the tattoo was a medica- a medicated? Yeah, it was like a patch. You know, it was a transdermal oh. system and the image on the tattoo would change as the drug was delivered. So if we were doing birth control for a woman with a one-week time release, we could have an image of a rose that would lose a petal a day so the woman would know when it was time for a next dose. And it, it was a wonderful product. It worked beautifully. We were in the bloodstream within 15 minutes, but I put everything I had into this. So that means I lost focus on everything else. I was only going for the home run shot. And um, we were at the plate for a while. We had... 50 meetings plus with pharmaceutical companies. They all wanted to license it. Um, and it just didn't work out. We came very, very close. But the FDA required uh, NDAs filed, new drug applications per drug per dose. It's about 600 million bucks per drug per dose. Wow. And um, there are soft dissolving tablets and strips that go through the dermal through your tongue versus your skin and you get the same results and the NDA isn't needed that way. Well, I think the idea sounds amazing. Yeah, it was worth because... it. It cost me a home and a marriage. I, I, oh. I'd do it again. Well, now there, here's a man who has commitment. That's unbelievable. So after, I mean, this, this had to be like such a devastating blow. Um, because the idea sounds like it's amazing. I mean, I keep thinking, like, why is the world, the tattoo thing is getting crazy? And I know at some point a lot of people, I, I know of a lot of people personally who said, why did I do this? I, I don't want this on my arm anymore because, uh, you know, listen, I change my shirt every couple of months. <laughs> so, uh, But it sounds like an amazing idea. Like, it just, it's just... It's just unfortunate that it didn't catch fire. So, so how did the transition uh, to Tab, 
Like, how did you so, manage to end up like where you are now? So the divorce begins and, well, life transitions, right? And I, I had three kids at that point and I needed insurance for the kids. So I needed to find a night job and things like that where I could uh, afford to survive. Um, and so I started managing radio shacks and things like that where there were benefits for the kids. So I would do my inventing stuff in the daytime. And at that point, we were... A manufacturer for other inventors and I don't know if you remember the eye black that football players wear where there was a logo on the eye black yes those were our tattoos it wasn't our invention but we were the manufacturer um, so that kind of kept me afloat a little but I still had the expenses and so I started managing radio shacks and the problem was I fell in love with doing it you know I was out on the front lines I wasn't home I was um, I don't know, part of a Fortune 500 company, and I was learning how to hire and fire and um, crafting my skills of selling or whatever it was, um, and they kept promoting me. And before I knew it, I was a, man a hiring manager of one of the marquee stores in New Jersey in the Bridgewater Mall. And um, it, it, I loved it. But so uh, the reason you loved it, and I'm going out on a limb here, because the inventing business is a very lonely business. Because uh, I'm in something similar, and you spend a lot of time alone. So the interaction, the interpersonal actions that you were having, you know, that was kind of brought new skills to life that you were just like. It was just fun. It was fun to be a part of the mainstream. And yeah, you, I got out of my comfort zone and got out there a little bit. Um, right. But it, it was abusive hours wise. I remember one week I worked 87 hours and I, I had some district manager telling me I needed to be doing more. So that <sighs> pretty quickly. Wow. Um, and, and there are great people in that organization. At least there were. Um, it's a shame to see what's happened to them. Yeah. So it just occurred to me. So the crash on the floor was the day after I left and Radio Shack's now done after I left. So. I'm not taking credit, but coincidence, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> wow. So I'm going to follow you around and just, you know, I'll just be your shadow. <laughs> Excuse me. So, anyway, so, so around that time, the owner of the Tab franchise, you know, knew what I was going through, knew I was going through this divorce. And um, we were about finalized then with the divorce and everything was good. You know, everything was amicable. But I needed nights and weekends off for the kids. And he said, why don't you come work with me? You know Tab. You know how to sell uh, seats and uh, facilitate boards. So come work with me. And I said, sure. And it got me out of retail. And uh, I started working with this gentleman, Bob Zelnick, who was my original business coach and my original uh, franchisee. And um, about a year into it, he was diagnosed with lung cancer, and six months later, he died. Wow. And it, it was sad. Um, Bob was a good man with a good business and a good heart and good ethics and good morals. I have nothing bad at all to say about Bob Zelnick. Um, so you took, you actually, you know, took his position over, and you're now carrying well, the Well, there was torch. a transition period where the members actually, members and some family, um, lent me money to buy the franchise because I had no money at the time. Okay. And uh, so we had about 20 members then. And, um, and the franchise was doing okay with 20 members or so. And we blew it out. We got up to as high as 70 members rather quickly. 
And um, so the Alternative Board, just to explain what it is, is a very interesting uh, organization. It's a place where owners come for a monthly board meeting. It's a four-hour board meeting once a month. I put no more than eight owners on a board. There's a chemistry that I try to create. Either we base it on company size, um, industry, mindset. Uh, there's some factors that go into it. But it's a four-hour board meeting with individual one-on-one -on -one coaching afterwards, uh, meaning in between meetings, where we flush out a challenge for the next month's board meeting. And the board meeting is the opposite of networking. That's not why people are there. It can happen, but not the intent. Right. So if it, when you say it's the opposite of networking, so meaning exactly what? What is the opposite of well, networking? This is the place where you're 100% honest. Okay. So you, you can't save your ass and your face at the same time. Right. So it's kind of like pick one. And okay. my feeling is save your ass and your face will follow. You know, it's don't worry about looking good at a board meeting. The, everyone there, their only motive is to help each other. No one's invested in each other's company. Nobody. The only motive is to help the entrepreneur. And each owner gets a turn to present every month. Each owner gives feedback to all the other owners every month. And they keep in touch throughout the month. They kind of bleed together, sweat together, sometimes cry together, but they succeed together. It's amazing to see the growth of our owners. So with, with no, uh, no subterfuge agenda lurking beneath, you can, you can really get down and, and dirty and honest yeah. and, and, and do some actual, real, have some tangible results yeah. with, without the window dressing. Owners make decisions faster than they would if they weren't on a board because the board's going to hold them accountable. Right. Uh, we had one guy come to a meeting one month, just happened two months ago. I was like, yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to open a new location in Connecticut. And at the next board meeting, he had the keys to the place. Just like that. Just like that. That's results. Right. That's that's amazing. And that uh, no, You know, like yeah. like that story is probably... You know, most people, six months, a year, two years. Could be six years. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So at a, if you present something to your board, you will do something about it. It's not just going to get blown off because everyone's going to remember. And so so, the, so it's really a mastermind thing of sorts. Uh, I started doing one myself six months ago. And, and yeah, that holding accountable uh, – is great because it motivates you to show up to say, I'm not going to come back here with the same material I had last two weeks. I better have something new and I better have results on the things I presented last time. Right. If there's someone you need to fire, let's say, or hire, that's not going to go on for six months. But the difference between what we do in like mastermind groups and other things, which are great, but ours are professionally facilitated as well. Yeah, it sounds like you've taken it to a whole new level. And then we also have, so you get the one-on-one -on -one in between board meetings, but we also have a monthly lunch and learn. We have a couple of annual events. Uh, in June, we're having our first trade show where we'll give a class teaching our members how to give a better trade show. And on June 26th at County College of Moores, we will have some of our TAB members in trade show, show booths presenting. 
it's the only real opportunity they'll ever have to sell to one another. That's a, that sounds like a great organization. Hey, um, moving along here, tell tell me the favorite part of your day. You have all this experience. Uh, you're, you're running the uh, the um, alternative board now, and you've got this wealth of you know the inventing, all the things that you've done. So right now in 2015, what's the favorite part of your day? What do you like like more than anything else? We get a lot of people jobs. When our owners are growing, they generally come to us and say, this is who I'm looking for. Who do you know? So their growth in general, you know, is amazing for me to watch. I've seen people go from zero to a half million bucks. I've seen companies go from 250000 to $3 million. It, 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 I don't know. It, it never am- it stops to amaze me the role that we get to play in that. Um, so, so you're generating this, this unbelievable success that the people coming to you probably had no idea this could even happen to them, but, but your gift seems to be, I can see this coming from 10 blocks away. I know what to do to facilitate this person's magic and make it, just make it into reality. Well, I Correct? take no credit for their success. It's their success. But there is some way that Tab plays a role in that for sure. You gotta, you gotta illustrate the map, because they don't know the map. Right, and sometimes it's just asking the right question, and they have the answer. So we tend to lead by questions, but again, it's this is their success, not ours. But I'm thrilled to be a part of it. So you're, you're asking what the best part of my day is. It's when they have a good day. Man, does that feel good? Right. So you know you're you're living your dharma when you're helping people. That's your thing. Tell me about downtime for you, Chris. What do you do to chill out, relax? What's your favorite thing? Music. Uh, okay. My favorite place to be is at a, a great music festival. Um, I also like playing hockey or watching hockey. Um, I can. I'm even at a place where I enjoy a lot of time with my kids, which is taking work for me. Um, so, you know, we just had a great weekend with all the kids. We've got four between us. Um, so yeah, my life is balanced. I also spend a lot of time at CrossFit at a gym. So most days on the way home, I'll do an hour or two at CrossFit and then go home. Um, it's a nice buffer for me to shake off the day and get ready for the night kind of thing. Right. Um, I, I don't know. I My life is very balanced and I, I'm real happy I've heard great things about CrossFit. I, I visit there often. We have a special friend there. That's right. <laughs> Dr. Chris introduced us, I guess. Yes, absolutely. So um, anything anything cool that you're reading that you want to share with us? Anything that um, that's, that's kind of sparked your interest lately that, that you found, like, you know, either f- philosophical or just a good read? Well, the three books we highly recommend are The E-Myth, Good to Great, and The One-Minute Manager. Okay. And being dyslexic, I'm not a huge reader. I'm a better listener, so I listen to stuff on tape. Right. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm not listening to anything currently. I'm I'm ready for something new. So E-Myth, good to great, and I'm sorry, what was the last one? Uh, the One Minute Manager. One Minute Manager. Okay, great. Well, I've heard of uh, all of these. Yeah, the E-Myth Excellent. is wonderful. It's all about managing your systems. E-Myth is? Yeah. Okay. And... um. So let me ask you about um, the best way for people to reach 
Chris Slipper, and also like who would be the best person? You you you're interested in uh, in companies specifically, and is there any um, particular profile that a company should should you know measure up to or match up to to um, come into your world to have some kind of um, uh, some kind of um, you know, way of, hey, th- these guys are perfect for me. I can help them. It's a great question. Um, so our average size right now is $5 million bucks, 44 employees. So that's okay. $5 million a year in uh, annual revenue, 44 employees. But that number is somewhat skewed because we're top and bottom heavy, which makes it a, a diluted average, if you know what I mean. So the, to answer your question, the owner we want is the owner who feels stuck and doesn't know how to get to a next level, maybe is plateaued and doing in his flat for a number of years. What we don't want are know-it-alls. Right. It's very frustrating when we get a know-it-all on a board and they don't last long. We'll ask them to step down. Because then you can't help them, nor can they help anybody else. We don't want anyone right. there who's there to pontificate, if you know what I mean. Right. We want exactly. someone who's willing to be vulnerable, who can share a challenge or an opportunity and you know somebody else might go through it in six months and they're now going to know what to do because this guy went through it six months earlier and they saw the results positive or negative right. so owners that are just feeling a little stuck a little lonely who want to hang with other entrepreneurs what we really offer is community we have a wonderful community of business owners in morris county tab in general does um, but it, it's an energy it's a passion it's a drive that you don't feel uh, with, no offense, with executives. Right. You know, it's just different. Okay, so so anybody looking for this kind of help who has a business uh, that could benefit from all the things that Chris just described, please reach out. Chris Lipper, L-I-P-P-E-R. He's the managing member at TAB, the Alternative Board of North Central New Jersey. And uh, Chris is on LinkedIn. You can reach him there. And Chris, um, best website or best way to contact you? At tabnj.com. My email is chris at tabnj.com. My phone number is 973-540-0444. And what we do, the way we onboard new members is once a month, we have a free mock board meeting where somebody can come and try tab. They meet with me first. We flush out a challenge. They present it there to other people interested in trying tab. And those who want to sign up, sign up. That sounds like an awesome opportunity um, for anybody considering this kind of help and to be in a place where you can have this kind of value presented to you. I think this is a, you know remarkable. And I love what you're doing with your company. And uh, I want to just thank you for being a part of the Dharmic Evolution today. Um, thank you. Everybody, Chris Lipper. And you know how to reach him. So, Chris, it was a pleasure. Thank you, Kevin. Well, that was super uber cool. I had a great time on that interview. Just the content alone was just uh, magical. I mean, you know, the guy is a mastermind magician, stock market, uh, inventor, tattoos, medicated tattoos. Never, whoever heard of such a thing? So I hope you had a good time today on the Dharmic Evolution like I did, always learning something new and exciting. I'm your host, James Kevin O'Connor, audio-video artist, singer, songwriter, and master storyteller. Such a pleasure to have you on board today. I'll either see you on the socials or I'll see you from the stage.